I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the History of Islam podcast. Episode 13, Quraysh Take Action. Last episode marked the end of Quraysh's idle toleration of the new religious sect that was brewing up in their city. We left off with the beginnings of the response towards Muhammad's teaching and preaching with the delegation that was sent to Abu Talib, leader of the Bani Hashim. The vast majority of the Hashim clan stood firmly behind Abu Talib's ultimate decision to continue offering Muhammad protection and not interfere or impede uh, his controversial activities. Some, however, within the clan of Bani Hashim did not approve. The most vocal of this minority was actually Muhammad's uncle Abu Lahab. Two of Muhammad's daughters, Ruqayya and Umm Kalthum, were actually betrothed to two of Abu Lahab's sons. After Muhammad's stunt on the Mount of Safa, his uh, public proclamation of Islam, Abu Lahab terminated the marriage contracts. His sons tried to protest, but Abu Lahab quickly quelled their resistance, threatening to never speak to them again if they did not abide by his wishes. As Muhammad continued, unfazed with every passing day, preaching his religion and the word of one God to the people of Mecca, the nobles of Quraysh realized that their delegation to Abu Talib had achieved nothing. The offending sight of Muhammad by the Kaaba continued to plague their sights. One of the nobles of Quraysh, a prominent man from the elite clan of the Bani Makhzum, who was known to all as Abu al-Hakam, the father of wisdom. Abu al-Hakam was a very well-respected man, He was renowned for his intelligence, sound judgment. His opinion was trusted by all. And he began to demand a stronger, uh, iron fist approach towards the issue of Muhammad, a problem that was now at the forefront of Meccan politics. Abu al-Hakam began to speak openly about collective punishment for the Hashim clan, even going as far as hinting at outright warfare. However, despite his aggressive lobbying, the nobles of Quraysh hesitated to act rashly and attack Muhammad or his clan the Bani Hashim for that matter. 
According to the accepted rules that effectively govern society, those unwritten rules of the traditional Bedouin moral code, Abu Talib, as a clan chief, had the absolute right to grant his protection to Muhammad, and although these rules were unwritten, the Arabs lived and died by them. It was also in the interest of every other chief of clan in Mecca to see that the rights of the chieftaincy were duly respected and upheld by all. The Quraysh accused Muhammad of being an anarchist who was disrupting age-old practices and traditions and with them the very social fabric that kept the tribe of Quraysh together. So it would be very difficult for them to punish Abu Talib for doing something that he was entitled to do. Protection was not only within Abu Talib's rights, it was also expected of him. So it would be the peak of hypocrisy to punish a man for using the very social institutions that they claim to love and protect. It had been only a few months since Muhammad went public with his message, but time seemed to be running out for Quraysh. The pilgrimage season was fast approaching and the pagans of Arabia would soon be coming to Mecca. Hospitality towards the pilgrims, as you know, was a major issue and concern for the Quraysh. This year, however, the pilgrims would witness Muhammad preaching his message and in the process insulting their gods, all the while the nobles of the Quraysh sat and twiddled their thumbs. Muhammad could even win himself some converts with his words. Regardless of whether the pilgrims would be insulted or converted, Muhammad's activities would undoubtedly lead to many a pilgrim avoiding Mecca in the future. This would not only make the proud Quraysh appear weak due to their idleness and diminish their honour and prestige as guardians of the sanctuary, it could also be dangerously harmful to the trade that Mecca had thrived on, the trade that Mecca relied on to exist. So it was the fast approaching pilgrimage season that pushed Quraysh into action and forced the rival clans to forge a united front against public enemy number one, Muhammad ibn Abdullah. We have now reached the point where Quraysh's toleration of Muhammad's sect has expired. The response to his movement begins to escalate from minimal verbal abuse to active prosecution. So before we actually move on to Quraysh's coordinated efforts to stop Muhammad, let us just slow down and take a minute to see why Quraysh actually felt the need to oppose Muhammad's religious movement and why they felt the need to actively combat it. We've already brushed over a few, for example, the risk posed towards trade, but let's look at a few others in a bit more detail. In Mecca, business and religion went hand in hand. The town was built in a narrow, sterile valley, surrounded by bare hills. A great portion of Mecca's food supply was imported. Consequently, Mecca's livelihood depended entirely on the profits of the trade that Quraysh conducted and the pilgrimage that the Kaaba attracted. Now, the caravan trade was as profitable and as lucrative as ever, the wealth of the Quraysh had actually increased significantly in the 6th century, uh, particularly the second half of the 6th century, and was continuing to rise in the 7th century. Now, this was primarily due to the talents and the proactivity of the Quraysh in the past, 
but also arguably the more important factor, the decay of the Yemen. The decline of the Yemeni kingdoms in the south of Arabia actually allowed the Meccans to form a stronger grip on the caravan routes that span the Arabian Peninsula, uh, mainly the ancient incense trade routes that we've discussed uh, in the past. The caravans of Quraysh regularly trekked through the deserts, traveling to places like Damascus in the Byzantine Empire to the north. These caravans carried with them, as we mentioned in previous episodes, uh, not only Arabian products like the leather uh, and the incense, but also goods from other parts of the globe, such as spices that originated from India and slaves and ivory from East Africa. What actually allowed for this trade and wealth to bubble up uh, was the same thing that made Mecca an attractive destination at certain times of the year, the cuboid building that sat in its center, the Kaaba. The wealth, the growing prosperity of Mecca and the religious cult of Mecca were intertwined, inseparable. If Mecca suddenly became unable to attract the pilgrims that it did, then it would almost certainly rapidly decline. And this was a present threat that the teachings of Muhammad posed. Another reason for Quraysh's opposition to Muhammad that also stemmed from economic reasons was the actual content of Muhammad's teaching. The verses that Muhammad recited and preached in public claiming to have received from a higher power, from a one God, were almost political in nature as well as religious. And this was because they attacked and harshly criticized the social structure and culture of Mecca, and with it, the entirety of Arabia. The Prophet Muhammad not only condemned the worship of idols, he also condemned the frantic pursuit of wealth at the expense of the poor. This greed-driven mindset had possessed Mecca in the recent years. Over the course of the second half of the 6th century, there was a significant shift in Mecca from a pastoral nomadic economy to a mercantile one. So previously, people of Mecca, the inhabitants of the area that is known as Mecca, would have got by through the raising of animals such as goats and camels, mainly camels. And they would sustain themselves almost entirely from camel milk and the products of the animals that they raised. And that was the cornerstone of their economy. Now, the increase of wealth and the the trade links that the Quraysh had forged over the 6th century had shifted the economy from this pastoral nomadic economy that relied on the animals mainly to a mercantile one, where the bartering of goods, the selling of goods, the trading of goods was the cornerstone of the economy now, and it was what made the people rich. It was where most people would gain their incomes from. The people of Mecca, despite this economic shift, had retained the tribal ways of old, the attitudes, morals, and social institutions of the desert, which were appropriate for the pastoral nomadic economy. In fact, they were perfect for it. In the harsh conditions of the desert, people had to band together in order to survive. As we have discussed extensively in previous episodes, tribal solidarity was very important loyalty to your tribe had to come before everything and it it did it came before anything and everything 
If you were to see your kinsman in any kind of trouble or danger, be it something as major as a life-threatening attack or as minor and trivial as an insult, you would help out your kinsman regardless of whether he was in the right or the wrong, uh, regardless of what the confrontation could lead to, regardless of what kind of escalation might occur, you were there to support your kinsman. It's tribal loyalty. Without it, society could not function. In Mecca, as a result of the economic shift and the increase in wealth that it brought with it, the traditional Bedouin code of honor had actually been decaying in recent years. It was becoming increasingly irrelevant. The people of Mecca were becoming less and less concerned with upholding what were really the traditional building blocks of Arabian society. The nobles of Quraysh were worrying less and less about making sure no member of their tribe was left behind. Instead, they focused their efforts on increasing their own personal wealth, their own personal power. And so what was happening was that slowly but surely, the tribal solidarity that was the primary foundation of Arabian society was being replaced by individualism. So the group the group structure was breaking down and people were more concerned with looking out for themselves. The great merchants of the Quraysh would put their business interests before everything else. This would have never happened previously because no one would ever put anything uh, ahead of something as key as the tribe and tribal solidarity. So these merchants would put their business interests before everything, including their tribe. So by the time of Muhammad, by the time Muhammad was actively preaching, the breakdown of the traditional tribal moral system was actually well underway. The cracks had already began to show and Muhammad was more than willing to highlight them and exhibit them to anyone who would listen. The final reason that I would like to mention for now is the growing number of people accepting Muhammad's message. And in addition to this, the actual identities and the types of people that were accepting Islam. In a past episode, we have already looked at exactly who Muhammad's earliest followers were and we ultimately filtered them into three different categories that reflected their status in Meccan society. We mentioned that Muhammad had quite a few followers from the lower rungs of society, for example Bilal ibn Rabah, uh, the slave of an Abyssinian heritage uh, who was the slave of a Qurashi nobleman known as Umayyah ibn Khalaf, who was a leading figure of the Jumah clan. As Muhammad began to garner a following from this lower class that consisted of slaves and freedmen, the Qurashi nobles who actually owned these slaves became increasingly enraged at the notion that individuals that they owned, their property, the likes of Bilal and Ammar and others, were... Even on a budget... Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns becoming more independent-minded 
I would not go as far as to say that the nobles feared something like a slave uprising, but I think when you bring the Arab character into the mix, the issue of individuals who are subject to you openly expressing their freedom um, by converted to another religion, I think that's a significant expression of freedom. It becomes somewhat of an insult or a slight to one's honour as it's an open act of defiance that ultimately had to be squashed. When it came to the other followers of Muhammad who were of a higher societal status, the Quraysh saw their conversions as a form of treason, defections that sapped away the strength and prestige of the tribe of Quraysh. So, sparked into action by the fast-approaching pilgrimage season and determined to tolerate no more defections such as that of Abu Bakr, the ruling elite of the Quraysh began a determined and coordinated effort to ensure that Muhammad and his followers remained as they were, a weak and despised minority. Pressure eventually began to mount on Abu Talib to disown his nephew, expel him from the Hashim clan and thus leave him without any protection. Expulsion from the Bani Hashim would make Muhammad, under the law of the Arabs, a man whose blood was licit, a man who could be killed legally without any consequence, without any fear of retribution or reprisal by his relatives. It would make Muhammad effectively a sitting duck. Nothing more than a dead man walking. The Quraysh, following the suggestion of Abu Sufyan ibn Harb, a leading member of the prominent Bani Abd Shams clan, went as far as offering Abu Talib a straight swap, a member of the Bani Abd Shams, in return for Muhammad. This proposition, along with many other offers and advances, was swiftly dismissed and rejected by Abu Talib. After hitting a brick wall with Abu Talib, the Quraysh found themselves with their hands tied for the time being. So they decided to come together and address the looming issue of the rapidly approaching pilgrimage season. Major decisions such as this one and the general governing of the city was vested in what was called a melet, which when literally translated simply means a gathering or an assembly. To truly appreciate what it was, what it actually means, I believe it's best to think of it simply as a senate or a council. The melet was effectively the governing nucleus of the Quraysh and the city of Mecca, and it was comprised of all the heads of the clans, uh, the chiefs of the major clans and families of the Quraysh, and also all the notables of the principal clans. So it was it was not just the clan chiefs. So even if you were not a clan chief, but you were one of the richest men in Mecca, for example, you would be a member of the Melet. The main differences that I would like to highlight between uh, a council or a senate and the Melet was that, firstly, there were no official or even generally recognized positions. Uh, in a similar vein, there was no real structure in place that dictated how meetings would go uh, or how important decisions were to be finalized. The melet was not a rigidly followed administrative process. It was simply a device that aimed to produce results through discussions. It, people just got together and discussed things and decisions were 
only made when there was a consensus. Now, this was all due to the lack of a central authority that could reform this process and enforce decisions. There was no legal framework that provided a method of making one clan bow to the decisions of the rest. No member of the Melet had any official authority over another member. So even if there was, for example, in a hypothetical situation, a vote on a certain decision that eight clans agreed on and two did not, those two clans that did not agree did not have to concede and go with what the majority had agreed upon. They could simply ignore it. And again, this was due to the lack of a central authority that could enforce decisions, the absence of written laws, the absence of a legal framework. And when you add the proud Arab character into the mix, uh, and this often happened, clans would just refuse to recognize the majority decision, and this would ultimately result in a less effective decision-making process and in less effective policies being implemented. However, in the case of the Quraysh, along with their economic shift that we mentioned earlier from the pastoral nomadic economy to the mercantile economy, the Quraysh, particularly when they were dealing with external threats, so threats that would face all the clans equally, they would usually prevent their internal disagreements from greatly impeding the decision-making process. And they wouldn't allow for said disagreements to break into violence that would disrupt their unity. So clans that, for example, formed a minority that opposed the decision that was agreed upon by the majority of clans would be persuaded through diplomatic measures, through means other than violence, in order to change their minds. At their meeting, the Quraysh tried to find a way of nullifying Muhammad's words and, in effect, silencing him. The course of action that they eventually agreed upon was a smear campaign. A lot of suggestions were bandied out. They said that they would label him a, a madman, a sorcerer, a liar, a kahin, a poet, insane, possessed. In the end, they went with sorcerer. They would make sure that they got to every pilgrim that came to Mecca before Muhammad could and they would tell the public that Muhammad first of all did not represent the Quraysh and secondly that he was in fact a dangerous sorcerer who bewitched people with his verses and his words. Verses that he falsely claimed to be miraculously revealed to him from an upper, from an upper power and these verses had the ability to bewitch people and separate a man from his brother a father from his son and a husband from his wife. And these words would be particularly effective because when you have in mind uh, how important tribal solidarity is and just solidarity in general between such close family members, brothers, fathers and sons, husbands and wives, these words can be particularly effective and disturbing to hear from your general Arab man who for him, the separation of what were such close figures was blasphemous. It was appalling to even hear. The intention here was that if they carried out the smear campaign correctly and effectively, every person that Muhammad approached would have already been exposed to the words of the Quraysh 
and would therefore already have a negative image instilled uh, in their minds of Muhammad. And this would make them less receptive to Muhammad's approaches and also less likely to be affected in any way whatsoever by his words. Unfortunately, that is all for today's episode, but do not leave yet. We have some very, very important announcements. Uh, but first, I've got a listener question. Uh, one listener emailed me a question that is actually quite similar to many other emails I have received. So I've decided to answer it in the podcast. Uh, Sam from Canada asks, uh, I think you have said in the past that you will be avoiding theology. However, will you be going over any of the practices of the religion of Islam? For example, the five pillars. The answer is yes, I will uh, briefly cover the main practices of Islam as embodied by the five pillars of Islam, but this will not happen until much later on in the podcast. I'm planning for it to be most likely after the farewell pilgrimage. If you've never heard of this, it is an event that is close to Muhammad's death. So still a very long way to come uh, in terms of episodes. If some of you want to learn more about Islam now, one of the most important acts of worship in Islam is Salat, prayer. It is one of the five pillars. Muslims have to pray five times a day. And there is actually a really great app that is free on the iTunes store. Uh, it's called the Qiyam app. That's Q-I-Y-A-M. And what it does, it's a prayer timetable that tells you all the five prayer times of the day according to the location that you are in. If you are not a Muslim, I would say go ahead and download it in order to find out how often Muslims are required to pray and at what times. The app also has a compass that shows the correct direction uh, in which to pray. For those of you that don't know, Muslims actually have to pray facing the Kaaba. So I've received quite a few emails asking me about uh, the practices that Muslims have to uh, follow. So it's pretty interesting stuff. For those of you that want to learn more about the nature of Islam and the practices that Muslims are required to follow. If you are a Muslim, it is the best app of its kind that I have seen uh, available to download for free. It is really well designed. I'm told that it will be available on Android in about a month's time on the website qiyamapp.com. Again, that is qiyamapp.com. If you just search qiyam on itunes it should come up finally i have some very important announcements there will be a temporary schedule change from weekly episodes to an episode every fortnight so the next episode will be on the 8th of april i also want to announce that i will be unfortunately forced to take a break due to schoolwork and exams for two months may and june don't worry, this is only a temporary change. We will definitely be returning in July and we'll be returning back to a full-blooded weekly schedule. I fully intend for this podcast to keep going for a very long period of time. I'm hoping to go way over the 100 episode mark. I just want you to know that it is entirely possible and even likely that I may be able to post the odd episode during the two-month break in May and June. So in order to make sure that you do not miss any important announcements or any episodes, there are a few options for you to remain updated. I'm just going to quickly rattle them off, but they will also be in the episode guide for you to read. Okay, so number one, the blog is the main primary source of information on the podcast. 
you can easily subscribe to the blog's RSS feed uh, by going onto the feeds page on the blog. Uh, if you don't know what the blog's web address is, it's historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com. You can also subscribe by email, which for me is the more preferable option. To do this, just head over to the blog and click on the categories slash index page. Over there, you will find an assortment of links. One of them will be a link that will show you how to subscribe by email. Really easy. You just click on the link, put in your email, and then you will receive emails into your inbox that will notify you in the event of any episodes or any updates. The final way is to like the newly created Facebook page. Just go on to facebook.com forward slash the history of Islam podcast. So you figure out which is the best for you. Uh, RSS, email, bookmark the blog, Facebook like, whatever. Figure out what is best for you and go ahead and keep yourself updated. One final thing before we go, as you now know, the History of Islam podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. One of our features is the podcast of the month. This month, the honour goes to David Crowther's The History of England podcast. If you're a fan of Mike Duncan's The History of Rome, then you will absolutely love The History of England podcast. To find out more about it, head over to historyofengland.typepad.com. It has been Elias Belharad informing you on the history of Islam. I'll see you next episode on the 8th of April. Goodbye. Oh.